I've never had it asked in any finals presentation with any client, but it should be part of every um, interview with a potential active manager. And that is, if you're so smart, if you're going to add value in the long run, who is the loser on the other side of your trade and why are they willing to be stupid? If they don't have a good answer to that, then they don't know their own alpha engine properly. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, we talk with Rob Arnott, founder of Research Affiliates, prolific market researcher, and developer of investment strategies. I had technical issues, so this one is all Jack, and they had a great discussion on a host of topics, including the attractiveness of value stocks in emerging markets, how to think about investing in areas where there might be a bubble, the concept of rebalancing alpha, the one question every investor should ask an active manager, and much more. This is a great interview. As always, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion with Research Affiliates' Rob Arnott. Rob, thank you for joining us. It's a privilege. Thank you. We're going to cover a lot of topics today. We're going to talk about value investing. We're going to talk about fiscal stimulus. We're going to talk about inflation. But first, I want to take a step back and and talk about Research Affiliates and the firm that you founded. Um, You you founded Research Affiliates in 2002, and I believe now you're, if I'm correct, you're now north of $150 in assets run using your models. Mm -hmm. 170, give or take. Yeah. Okay. Um, And I'm wondering maybe if you could just tell the story of of how you got from 2002 to where you are today. Well, I was running um, First Quadrant uh, back from 1988 until uh, 2004. And um, I I had issues with the parent company. I, I didn't like their business model. And when it became clear that that wasn't going to be subject to negotiation, I basically said, look, I'm out of here in the next five years. Um, Let's figure out a transition that can be win-win, and I will start my own business. And so I started Research Affiliates in early 2002, ran both companies side by side for two years. And to avoid conflicts of interest, I decided I need to create product and then license them through others. And in fairness to First Quadrant, First Quadrant gets right of first refusal on any ideas we want to pursue. So our first business relationship was with PIMCO. They were getting set to launch the All Asset Fund. Um, They were debating whether to run it in-house, in which case they doubled down on their own uh, global macro views, or to bring in an asset allocation specialist from outside. So we had conversations, and ultimately they led to PIMCO deciding to um, work with me on uh, building this asset allocation product, the first to embrace liquid alternatives as part of the whole opportunity set, hence the name All Asset. And um, I took it to my team and uh, said, uh, uh, First Quadrant has right of first refusal. They said, what's the fee going to be? I said, 20 basis points. They said, what's the initial AUM? I said, 3 million seed money. Uh, (laughs) They did the math and they said, have at it. Go go have fun. And um, uh, so ultimately, 
during that two-year transition, we realized <clears throat> this business model can work. Uh, if we build products, we are an extension of an affiliate's uh, R&D, product innovation capabilities. They are our um, distribution capability. So uh, we don't have to have a call center. We don't have to have a trading desk. We don't have to have trade reconciliation or portfolio accounting. We don't have to have much of a marketing team other than a team that can support our affiliates in their distribution efforts. And um, we can concentrate on what we think we're good at, which is product innovation. Um, the secret to that working is don't be greedy. There's lots of people who want to be in the business of building product and then letting others distribute it. And they say, well, we'll split the revenues 50-50. No, that doesn't work. Um, the distribution, the people who own the client relationships are going to want 70, 80, 90%. And unless you're willing to negotiate in that range, it's not going to happen. And so um, uh, I like to joke that we have 170 billion, but it's all at very low fees, so we're very poor. <laughs> do you think that the decision not to manage money directly, do you think the firm was maybe more successful because you made that decision? Yes, um, we did uh, <clears throat> manage money ourselves, and we realized that 95% um, uh, of our AUM and 85% of our revenue was from affiliates. So from 2005 to 2014, we were managing money directly, but um, it was small. Uh, at its peak in 2014, it was... Uh, on the orders of 15 billion, that's all. And so we decided, um, uh, let's get out of this. And so we, we offered that book of business to PIMCO uh, for the lofty price of zero uh, and uh, moved, the, moved the book of business over to them and retain, of course, a revenue share. Um, and that's been a win-win transition. So, um, we may in future um, do things like create a strategy of our own, seed it with our own money, and then once it has a year or two track record, take it around to affiliates and say, do you want to offer this to clients? Um, but we're never going to get back in the business of running money for external clients, uh, as far as I can tell. Yeah, and having managing money ourselves, I mean, I know that there's, there's a lot of headaches that come with managing money, so it, it is, it is right. a great model to avoid a lot of that stuff. Right, and if we're managing money in an uh, LLC or in a, uh, a single client ETF or whatever, <laughs> uh, we can easily pass the keys over to an affiliate and say, here, you, you take over driving this. Um, and, and we can create a track record on ideas we believe in uh, without having to pitch it to a client, a distribution partner, when there's uh, no AUM and no live track record. That makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the things that a lot of people assume when they, when they see someone like yourself who's built a really, really successful business is they sort of assume it was a very smooth process along the way. But in talking to a lot of successful business people, one of the things we've learned is you know, there, there are a lot of obstacles you have to overcome to get to where you are to managing north of $150 billion. I wonder if you could just talk about some of the challenges you faced between the beginning and where you are today. Well, firstly, any startup, you're putting people together that are new to working together. And um, uh, creating a corporate culture is very important to business success. 
and having different personalities and different objectives means, um, oh, I guess a good rule of thumb is um, if you're lucky, uh, two-thirds of the people you bring aboard are going to work out long-term. And so you have, you have relatively high turnover in the early years while you sort out the team that you want. Um, that's one hurdle. The other hurdle is people think you hang out a shingle and say, I'm going to run money, and money starts pouring in the door. Uh, look at Bill Gross, the biggest bond manager on the planet with the largest mutual fund on the planet, uh, left PIMCO in uh, 2014. He thought a quarter billion, a quarter trillion or more would flow over to him. At least I assume that's what he thought. Um, and yet what flowed over to him was essentially nothing. So it was it was lose-lose. Um, PIMCO lost a lot of AUM. Gross did not get a lot of AUM. I think he peaked at about maybe $2 billion. Um, and so hanging out a shingle, no matter how incredible your reputation and your array of contacts is, is not an assured path to success. You have to have ideas that are new and good. You have to have a narrative in place for why people should take a chance on you. Uh, for why your strategy is better than others that are available in the marketplace. Um, you have to prove yourself. The early numbers are very critical. I mean, if all asset had started out the gate with um, a terrible first year, it could easily have happened. It's a coin toss. The short-term results are largely random. Um, then it would never have grown to the uh, important book of business it is today. Um, and we wouldn't have had the resources to launch new ideas. So um, there's a combination of skill, designing products, um, creativity in how you present those products to the marketplace, and luck. Luck is a very significant part. People overlook that, and they think success is easy. Um, I've started... Uh, um, three businesses, uh, you could count it as four, but basically three businesses from scratch. They've all worked, but it was a slog getting them to critical mass and reaching the point where um, uh, we could have confidence that the business was uh, viable long-term. Yeah, that, that luck point you talked about, that's something you see a lot, you know, especially in the money management business, because, you know, we all know that you can't judge anything based on the re your one-year returns. But a lot of times when you launch a fund, everybody judges you based on your one-year returns. And so that, that can make it so challenging. Right, right. And oftentimes the, the, the view is, um, we'll talk to you when you've got a successful three-year track record and a successful inception-to-date track record. Well, inception-to-date is heavily contingent on that first year. And the three-year track record that looks good um, doesn't happen for at least three years. <laughs> so you don't, um, uh, the all-asset product suite was uh, under a billion, I think, for its first two and a half years. Uh, RAFI, Fundamental Index, was under a billion for at least its first year and a half to two years. And um, uh, they're both multiple tens of billions. So... Um, um uh, it's it's never a slam dunk people think it's easy it's not 
I want to shift and talk about the markets now a little bit. Um, you know, the word unprecedented maybe tends to get overused a little bit, but we've seen a lot of things in the past 15 months that you might you might call unprecedented. So I want to maybe go through a few of those. And you know, I know you have a very long history of studying markets, so I want to get your take on, on some things that are going on right now. And, and the first I want to talk about is fiscal stimulus. You know, we, we've had monetary stimulus going on for a long time now, but what seems to have changed, you know, in the wake of the coronavirus is the government is really willing to put money in people's hands. And a lot of people are thinking about what is that going to mean for the economy and what is that going to mean for the stock market? So I just wanted to get your take on, on how you think those, those things are going to impact markets and the economy. Well, firstly, to frame the discussion, I'm a libertarian. Uh, my, my core beliefs when it comes to uh, geopolitics are limited government is better than big government. The personal liberty should be unencumbered unless you're hurting other people. Uh, economic freedom should be unencumbered unless you're being predatory. And um, respect for the Constitution. Constitutions worked for a quarter of a millennium. Treat it gently with respect. It's um, a, a very powerful um, beacon for guiding you in the right direction. Those four principles Last year, both parties forgot all four principles. Neither party showed any respect for any of the four. So um, uh, I guess I'd count myself as a reluctant Republican who's currently disgusted with the whole political landscape. But be that as it may, um, stimulus makes its way into the capital markets and ostensibly into the macro economy. But Fiscal stimulus makes its way into the macro economy and then into the markets. Send people money. What they don't spend, they push into the capital markets. Um, and monetary stimulus makes its way into the economy by way of the capital markets. So stimulus, whether fiscal or monetary, is uh, enormously stimulative of the capital markets. Creates asset bubbles. Um, Fed governors uh, routinely dismiss that argument, and they're lying. <laughs> they're either naive or they're lying. Um, it creates ever larger wealth inequality, because if you create asset bubbles, who has assets? The affluent. Who doesn't have assets? The poor. And so asset bubbles exacerbate wealth and income inequality. Now, I'm not somebody who is opposed to wealth or income inequality. I, I think it's healthy. Um, as long as there's mobility, as long as somebody who's aspiring and poor has a chance to do very well, and somebody who's a, who's a dumb slacker who happens to be rich has the opportunity to fail. <laughs> but um, but uh, basically, stimulus doesn't stimulate the economy. Now, that's a nuance that people overlook. Fiscal stimulus, drop um, uh, 300 a week into people's uh, uh, bank accounts in order to stay unemployed. Uh, okay, um, is that going to boost production of goods and services? No, it'll lower it. Is it going to boost cash available to buy goods and services? Yes. Less goods and services, more money to buy them, is the essential driver of inflation. It'll boost the cost for the private sector to hire people, thereby creating wage inflation. And um, uh, wage inflation that's on the back of rising productivity is a wonderful thing. On the back of giveaways, it's not. 
So um, ultimately, you're not stimulating the macro economy. You're taking money and resources out of the macro economy to push back into the macro economy, which doesn't stimulate anything, or you're borrowing and printing money, which takes money out of the macro economy to push money into the macro economy. Again, it doesn't stimulate anything, and it provably doesn't stimulate anything. Um, so the neo-Keynesian uh, neo movement uh, is... Um, is dangerous and people talk about modern monetary theory as as a potentially dangerous idea no it's not a dangerous idea it's a dangerous reality now um, MMT we're practicing on steroids uh, basically print the money that you want to spend spend it on whatever you want to be the prime beneficiaries that are aligned with your particular uh, social and political objectives um, um, choose winners, choose losers. This is all deeply, deeply dangerous and very destructive. But uh, then again, people don't hire me for my political views. They hire me for my investment ideas. Well, well getting to your investment views, so are, are you of the belief that this inflation we, the, we might be seeing here is not transitory, that this is going to be something we're going to be living with going forward? You know, Savita Subramanian at um, Merrill, um, uh, there... Um, I believe lead economist and head of equities uh, is um, on record describing what's happening as uh, transitory hyperinflation. Now that's an interesting coining of a term. Basically the idea that we're creating a massive surge of inflation that will dissipate and become a steady run rate inflation that may be dangerous levels or may not, but the interim is transitory hyperinflation. The, the very label transitory hyperinflation uh, is chilling to me uh, because you can't be sure that it's transitory. And so I look at the current uh, inflation um, scenario and I think uh, there's a saying in uh, the world of commodities that high prices are the cure for high prices, meaning that high prices create additional supply, which pulls the prices back down. And so to the extent that high inflation cures itself by uh, forcing the powers that be to shut off the stimulus, uh, it can be a self-correcting mechanism. But I don't see this Fed and this government as being a Fed or a government that's going to be eager to shut off the spigots uh, unless they are forced to. And uh, could we see the latest 12 months, 5% inflation? Could we see the coming 12 months, 5%, 6%, 8% inflation, and the Fed still keeping rates at zero? I don't say that's a zero odds likelihood. I could imagine fairly severe inflation being greeted by um, our monetary authorities with, hey, the economy still has to catch up. We still have to keep rates at zero. That's a, that's a negative 6 or 8% real rate, which is an open invitation for uh, malinvestment, uh, misallocation of resources, propping up of zombie companies that really should die and clear the runway for companies with better management and better ideas and better products. 
uh, if you don't clear that runway, uh, innovation slows down, economic growth slows down, uh, a whole host of ills. But um, is it good for the markets? It can be good for the markets, even if it's bad for the economy, uh, because a lot of that money flows into the markets, propping them up. And so how do you think your, your average investor who's sitting in their 60-40 portfolio right now, a lot, of, a lot of our viewers are individual investors. How do they think of this? I mean, they, they were looking at low expected returns to start. You guys have an excellent uh, asset allocation interactive tool that showed, you know, whether you're in bonds or stocks, you know, the, the expected returns are not very good going forward. Now we're dealing with inflation. I mean, wh how, what's your average investor to do with this? Or do they just sort of ride this out because there's not much you can do? Or how do they think about their portfolio in this environment? Well, firstly, take the blinders off. You don't have a choice of U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds, and that's your whole opportunity set. Look at the whole spectrum of opportunities available to you. Um, on our Asset Allocation Interactive website, we provide forecast returns for 130 asset classes out there. Now, we've gone back historically and asked over the last 50 years, the methodology that we're using, how well does it forecast 10-year returns? And it does a pretty darn good job. It tends to be within a plus or minus 2% range on a 10-year return. Well, that's pretty cool. So what are we expecting for U.S. stocks? A little under 2%, slightly negative in real terms for the next 10 years. Ouch. Could we do better? Of course we could if valuation multiples stay right where they are at uh, near unprecedented levels, higher only at the peak of the tech bubble in 2000. Uh, if they stay there for the next 10 years, then you're going to see 2 or 3% real return. If they rise to Schiller P.E. ratio of 50 or 60, then who knows? You could get even better than that. Um, or they could be much worse than that if there's mean reversion back to historic valuations. So uh, bottom line is we're looking at less than 2% for the U.S. We're looking at about 8% for emerging market stocks using exactly the same methodology and not using heroic growth assumptions, using growth assumptions that are slightly better than U.S. growth, which is, if anything, a little conservative. Now, our work on our smart beta interactive website suggests that RAFI, Fundamental Index, in emerging markets should beat the emerging markets by about 5% a year. Add those together, you've got 13% a year. Now, that's before fees and taxes and spending, but still, 13 versus 2, if you've got plus or minus 2 as your likely confidence interval, that means you've got a 99% chance of beating U.S. stocks. So I have well over half of my liquid net worth in emerging markets, fundamental index, based strategies. And um, uh, I don't have a committee to report to, although when emerging markets stumble, my wife does start to wonder if, I, if I've taken stupid pills. But um, bottom line is, uh, I look at that analysis and think 99% chance of beating 60-40, uh, I'm all, all in. And so I have a relatively undiversified portfolio at the moment. I want to shift to talking about bubbles, but first I want to ask you one more question about emerging markets because I'm, I'm a big advocate of emerging markets myself, given how cheap they are. But one of the arguments people have made against emerging markets is when you when you isolate the sector composition between the U.S. and emerging markets, that emerging markets aren't as cheap as they appear to be. So in other words, if you look at the same exact sectors in the U.S., there's similar levels of cheap. I'm wondering if you found that and what do you think about that argument? Well, firstly, that's true. Um, 
but it only mitigates the cheapness. Instead of the U.S. looking extravagant and EM uh, uh, better than half off, about 55% cheaper, it winds up being maybe 40% cheaper. Um, it's still cheap. Secondly, the, the value stocks, emerging markets has its own version of FANG stocks. They, they're called the BAT stocks, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. They're priced passu with our FANG stocks. So if growth in emerging markets is as expensive as growth in the U.S. and the aggregate market is 40% off, then value must be extravagantly cheap, and it is. Um, uh, so when we look at the relative cheapness of value in emerging markets, we find a very stretched rubber band more than ever before in history. And that strikes me as a wonderful time to take on a value tilt. Unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of EM value funds out there, but RAFI and RAE um, achieve that same goal only more efficiently than a cap-weighted value strategy ever could. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, we've talked a lot of, about a lot of things in the interview that are sort of leading to the fact that we may or may not be in a bubble right now. And I know you've done a ton of research around bubbles. So I wrote an article where I basically piggybacked on a lot of your research and came up with a three-question framework where I was talking about how you can identify a bubble, but also if there, what, if anything, you can do about it. And so I wanted to work through that three-question framework with you to get your thoughts on, on each one of the questions and how investors might think about them. And the first one is, how would you define a bubble? What do you think the simplest way to define a bubble is? I find it interesting. People talk about the tech bubble, the Japan bubble, and it's always in retrospect. And if it's in the present, um, it's more framed as a question. Uh, I think Tesla might be a bubble. GameStop looks like it might be a bubble. Why not rigorously define the term bubble in a fashion that can be used in real time? So we did that in 2018. The definition is really simple. Firstly, start with a valuation model like discounted cash flow. What assumptions do you have to make about future growth to justify today's price? If those assumptions are extravagant and implausible, you might have a bubble. A check on that is uh, the second question. Does the marginal buyer care about valuation models at all? So is Apple a bubble? No. You have to use aggressive assumptions to justify today's price. They aren't extravagant. They aren't implausible. They're just aggressive. Um, and there are some marginal buyers of Apple who aren't buying the Apple story. They're buying a valuation model in which they're using aggressive assumptions, and they're saying, look, this stock is sensibly priced. Okay, so that's not a bubble. It's expensive, but it's not a bubble. Um, Tesla, uh, if you take last year's sales, 2020 sales, if you increase it by 50% per year for the next 10 years, then Tesla in 2030 will be 55 times as large as it was in 2020. 55 times as large. By comparison, Amazon, growing at 26% a year, compounded, tremendous growth, is 11 times as large as it was in the year 2010. So 11 times versus 55 times. Do you think Tesla will have five times as much growth in the next 10 years as, as Amazon had in the last 10? That seems to me implausible. Let's take a further assumption. Let's assume that their um, net profit margin, uh, uh, gap accounting profits in the year 2030 are 
as high as any major automaker has had in any year in the last 10 years. Well, that would be a little over 10% after-tax profit margin, um, uh, gross margins uh, before uh, the discretionary expenditures north of 25%. Uh, if they achieve that in 2030 and you discount that back to today, you get a value of $430, not 600 Okay, so yes, Tesla's a, a bubble if the marginal buyer doesn't care about valuation models. Have you met any Tesla investors who say, I'm looking at a discounted cash flow model, I love, I love the outlook for the company on a valuation basis? No, they don't exist. So that's the definition, and it is an actionable definition that can be used in real time. That's, I think, very important. Now, the next, the third part of your question is, what can investors do about bubbles? That is trickier. Bubbles can last longer and go further than anyone could possibly imagine. So be very careful about shorting bubbles. You don't have to own them, but shorting them is very dangerous. Um, my favorite example is the Zimbabwe stock market during the early stages of their hyperinflation in 2008. In the summer of 2008, if you said, this country's experiencing hyperinflation, it looks like it's about to get out of control. The last thing I wanna do is own stocks in this country. I'm gonna actually short them. I'm gonna short the Zimbabwe stock market, but I'm gonna do it prudently, just 2% of my portfolio. Well, the first six weeks of summer, the Zimbabwe stock market, the currency fell tenfold in six weeks. So people didn't want to have any Zim dollars uh, that they could possibly avoid holding. And so they put money into the stock market and it went up 500 fold in Zim dollar terms, 50 fold in US dollar terms in six weeks. By the end of the summer, the currency had fallen another hundred fold. The stock market essentially fell to zero and, dis and stopped trading. So you would have been absolutely right, but in the intervening weeks, you would have gone bankrupt. Uh, be very careful with bubbles. Anti-bubbles are a different story. Uh, Anti-bubbles also exist where you have to use implausibly bleak assumptions to not earn a risk premium. Uh, case in point is Russian and Chinese state-owned enterprises. Uh, the narrative for why people sell them is not they're too expensive. The narrative for why they sell them has nothing to do with valuation. It's basically these governments are kleptocrats. Um, they might decide to cut off the dividend, keep it all for themselves. Okay, if they do that, they're also cutting off access to global capital. So uh, we could probably assume that they're not going to do that, but they're going to be greedy and keep much of the goodies. The yield is already north of 5%. If they merely maintain the yield and allow it to grow with inflation, not even with GDP growth, just inflation, you've now got a 5% real return. In a zero yield world, that's a healthy risk premium. So an anti-bubble is one where valuation would have to use implausibly bad assumptions to not earn a risk premium, and the marginal seller doesn't care about valuation models. Um, anti-bubbles, you do want to play but you play them with patience and with diversification. Don't put all your eggs in one basket because maybe the kleptocrats will take it all. Um, but on the other hand, go ahead and 
uh, make an allocation, uh, chances are pretty good that it's going to be highly profitable. You talked about avoiding areas. You know, when you think there's a bubble in a specific area, you talked about one of the options is obviously just avoiding that area. I'm wondering what do you think about if, and I don't think we're there right now, but if, if the market as a whole ends up being in a bubble situation, what can investors do? You know, it was interesting. Med Faber had a tweet he put on Twitter where he was talking about, I think the highest cape the U.S. has ever seen is 45, I believe, in the tech bubble. And he was talking about, he kept putting higher numbers and saying, at what point would you not own the U.S. stock market? And, you know, even as he got up to 100, he was still getting more than 50% of people would continue to own the U.S. stock market. So is there a level where somebody who's in the U.S. stock market does, just doesn't want to be in it? Or is it too dangerous to try to time the market? Well, that depends on what you mean by timing the market. If what you mean is picking peaks and troughs, forget it. Nobody can do that. If what you mean is identifying a market that's expensive, that is likely to deliver lousy returns on a 10-year horizon, and just saying, I don't want to own this. Maybe it'll double in the next year, and I'll be kicking myself for getting out too soon, but I don't want to own it. Um, and let me move my money into markets that are cheaper. Uh, now, maybe they'll get cheaper still in the next year. Um, and so I'll feel, I'll look and feel stupid for a little while. But if I rebalance in, if I liked it at this level and it gets cheaper, then maybe I top up, maybe I top up to a slightly higher level. If you have the courage to keep doing that, when the market turns, you're going to have peak exposure at the trough and in the early stages of the rebound. That's what you want for successful long-term investing. Now, it requires being willing to feel and look stupid for uh, periods of time. And if you're not prepared to do that, heck, just go buy an index fund and, and ride the ups and downs and you'll probably be okay. But um, uh, if you want to add value, you have to do things that are uncomfortable. You reference index funds, and I wanted to ask you about those next. Um, you know, obviously, indexing continues to rise every year. We're seeing more and more investors indexing. You've called indexing a great idea with a massive Achilles heel. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what that Achilles heel is and what you think about index investing in general. Think about um, <clears throat> stocks that are priced too high relative to their future fundamentals. Now, we don't know what their future fundamentals are. But if the company is destined to perform worse than the market expects, it will underperform. If it's destined to perform better than the market expects, it will outperform. Now, if you had a crystal ball and could create a fair value weighted portfolio, cap weighting will assuredly overweight all the overvalued and underweight all the undervalued stocks. Okay, that's a given. Indexers have faced that criticism ever since the S&P was launched in 1957, and they've had a very ready retort to that, and that is, that's true. So what? You can't tell me which stock is which. Well, you don't have to know which stock is which. If you break the link between the weight in a portfolio and its price and the price of an asset, then an overvalued stock might be overweight or it might be underweight. An undervalued stock might be overweight or it might be underweight. Now the errors cancel. So roughly half of the portfolio is underweight, roughly half is overweight. That gives you a structural alpha um, that is directly proportional to whatever errors the market is making in pricing assets. If it's a mean reverting error, you will get an alpha by breaking that link. So uh, that much we know and can prove. Um, the um, 
the issue um, becomes pretty straightforward when it comes to what do you do about it. Anything you do that doesn't tie the weight to the price is going to give you a value tilt because growth stocks priced at premium multiples are likely to be downweighted. Value stocks trading at deep discounts are likely to be out overweighted. And this ironically holds true whether you're using fundamental index or a minimum variance strategy or equal weight. They all have the same alpha engine. This is something that none of the practitioners offering these products will talk about, but their alpha engine has nothing to do with equal weight or minimum variance or anything else. It has to do with breaking the link with price. If you break the link with price, then as the price soars, all else equal, you're going to want to trim. As the price tumbles, all else equal, you'll want to top it up. And so what winds up happening is you earn a rebalancing alpha from contra-trading against the market's most extravagant bets. That's the alpha engine for um, any of the smart beta strategies that truly deserve the label smart beta, although there's a lot of stupid strategies these days under the label smart beta. <laughs> Do you ever worry that index funds could get too big? You know, as, the, as the rate keeps going up, as the percentage of the market keeps going up, you have some people who give you doomsday scenarios in terms of how this could end really badly. There won't be price discovery or something like that. Do you, do you worry that, that eventually there's a level where index funds could get too big? And do you think we're anywhere near that? Well, firstly, uh, price discovery will always happen. Um, if index funds are 99% of the market, there's 1% making active bets. Does that mean that that 1% is going to beat the index funds? Collectively, not necessarily, because if the index funds own the market, except for 1% of it, and if that 1% owns the same portfolio as the index funds collectively, then they can't win. This is what Bill Sharp pointed out in his famous paper, The Arithmetic of Active Management. It doesn't mean that some active managers can't win, if others are losing. It just means that they can't collectively win. So one question that I think I've never had it asked in any finals presentation with any client, but it should be part of every um, interview with a potential active manager. And that is, if you're so smart, if you're going to add value in the long run, who is the loser on the other side of your trade and why are they willing to be stupid? If they don't have a good answer to that, then they don't know their own alpha engine properly. So with Rafi, the answer to that question is very simple. We contra-trade against the market's biggest bets. The people on the other side of our trade are those who are momentum-chasing trend followers who like to load up on the most beloved, popular, and expensive companies. And am I confident that they'll lose in the long run? Yeah. I am. So there is a loser on the other side of the trade. And it's not, it's not the index funds because they just own the market. It's the active managers who are momentum chasing, growth tilted, uh, popular, popularity weighted strategies. I want to shift and talk to something about more active investing here and talk about value. Um, you know, value's obviously had a really, really tough 10, 15 years here. Um, although the most recent, you know, the most recent year has been a lot better. And I'm wondering if you, and I know you've studied the history of value a lot. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there now who are saying value is dead for whatever reason. You know, too many people followed it. So the premium went away or we're measuring value incorrectly or, you know, there's a lot of things out there. And I'm just wondering if you could put the past decade in context. And if you think it says anything about the fact that value investing might not work anymore. Sure. Uh, we wrote a paper in the first quarter 
uh, issue of the Financial Analyst Journal this year. It's already the third most downloaded paper they've ever had. Um, the paper is entitled, Reports of Values Death Have Been Greatly Exaggerated. Uh, what we did is examine several of the narratives for why value investing is now dead. And empirically, we find that all of those arguments are flawed. The one argument for why value investing has fallen off a cliff uh, is actually a very encouraging one, and that is value has underperformed by getting cheaper. Now, that sounds like a tautology. Of course it got cheaper. That's what it underperformed. No, I'm talking about cheaper in valuation relative to growth measured using valuation multiples. So if, let's take the tech bubble as an example. In two years, value underperformed growth by 4,000 basis points. But its relative valuation relative to growth fell by 50%. So if a stock has fallen by 40% and its price to book value has fallen by 50%, then that must mean its book value is actually rising. Or in the case of value factor, the value portfolio's book value is rising faster than the growth portfolio's book value. Well, if you look at it that way, are you going to say, get me out of here, I can't stand the pain? Most people will do that. Or are you going to say, I can't believe how cheap this is. It's unprecedented. If I can possibly persuade my clients to top up, they're going to get rewarded. And reciprocally, in 2007, you would say value is as richly priced, as small a discount as we've seen in the last 30 years. So maybe at this stage, I should lighten up on value and go back towards passive. Um, would have been a perfectly reasonable answer. But by then, everybody was pouring money into value strategies because their past returns were great. When past relative valuation has been soaring, your past returns will look brilliant. And if there's any mean reversion, your future returns will be lousy. So at the peak of the tech bubble, growth stocks were 10 times as expensive using the Fama French growth versus value portfolio, 10 times as expensive on price to book value as the value portfolio. By last summer, it was 12 and a half times as expensive, an even bigger peak for the FanMag stocks than the peak for the Generation 1 tech bubble relative to value. Now, we know what the aftermath after 2000 was. Value beat growth for seven years by cumulatively well over 100 percentage points. 10,000 basis points. We've seen a snapback of about 20%, uh, 2,000 basis points for value relative to growth since the uh, early September trough. And uh, that's only tip of the iceberg of chipping away at the magnitude of cheapness that now constitutes value. So I look at value as, as being not as cheap as last summer, but apart from last summer and the peak of the tech bubble, it's never been cheaper than it is now. With, with bubbles, we talked about the hardest decision being not is there a bubble, but what do I do about it? And I want to ask you the same thing about value because this gets us into the whole debate about factor timing. And I know you, you and Cliff Asinus over the years have had debates about this issue, but I'm wondering, do, do you think people can systematically add exposure to something like value when it's cheap and increase their returns over time? Or do you think that's too difficult of a process? Um, I think Cliff and I are much more aligned than he likes to admit. Uh, the debate is has not been much of a debate. He's put out dozens of uh, tweets attacking my work, and I've put out zero 
uh, tweets uh, uh, responding. There's no point. Um, but uh, uh, he agrees that factors, when they're stretched, when they're in their extreme decile of relative valuation, uh, it's probably okay to make a bet. Um, I would say definitely. It's fine to make a bet. Uh, he would say value and momentum are two sides of the same coin. When they're in agreement, you're more likely to do well. I would agree. He would say don't put all your eggs in one basket. Just because value is cheap doesn't mean you go 100% into value. I agree. So bottom line is it's just nuances on how big a bet to make and uh, how big a signal you need to make that bet. And there we would have a difference of view. I would make a modestly larger bet on a modestly smaller signal than he would. Yeah, that's fine. Um, and so when you have, well, right now value is in its 98th percentile of historic valuation. It's no longer 100th percentile. It's no longer plumbing new depths of relative valuation. But it's 98th percentile. Now, if you just go back to the midpoint of the cheapest decile in history, to the 95th percentile, you're going to make over 2,000 basis points. That's a lot. So I look at that and I think, oh, and if you go back to the midpoint, you're going to make over uh, 10,000 basis points, more than 100 percentage points for value relative to growth. So I look at that and I say, I want to take on a value bet. But I do not want that value bet to be so large and so aggressive that um, uh, clients are going to take a hike uh, if it has one or two bad years back to back. Because good ideas can have periods of deep disappointment. So you never want to bet more than your client's tolerance for maverick risk, for results that are different from their peer group. Uh, maverick risk is the toughest risk to quantify, and it's the one that's most likely to get you fired as an asset manager. Um, so I look at uh, maverick risk and I think I want to take as much maverick risk as my clients are likely to find tolerable for two bad years in a row. And I do not want to exceed that threshold. If it's a client um, for my own money, I don't have a committee to report to. And if I'm down while the market's up for a year or two, it doesn't phase me. Uh, my wife might think I'm not too clever, but it doesn't phase me. Um, if I'm managing client money, I want to make the bet that's on a scale that they can tolerate. So, you know, could you put 10% of a client portfolio into something that goes against the market in the wrong direction for two years? Sure, almost anyone can tolerate that. 20%, many can tolerate that. 40%, nah, almost no one will tolerate that. So you have to scale it in accordance with a careful assessment of client risk tolerance. And the risk that matters is maverick risk. Yeah, it seems like you and Cliff would be aligned on the one, the one important point here, which is that investors should probably avoid the binary choice where they go all in on value. You know, because if you can't get the timing right, you're going to be so different than the market at that point that you're probably not going to be able to stick with it. Yeah. Now, in point of fact, for my own portfolio, I don't mind a little bit of uh, concentration. Uh, my 
business, research affiliates, is heavily correlated to the U.S. stock market and to um, ACQUI because 80% of our business is fundamental index related uh, equities. And so the last thing I want is for my um, personal liquid assets or my pension portfolio to be um, uh, aligned with where my business risk is. And so I have the majority of my liquid assets in um, deep value emerging markets. Uh, I have the majority of my retirement assets invested in all asset, all authority. These are both maverick strategies that were disappointing um, in the 2010s, but were brilliant in the decade prior and have been brilliant over the last uh, six to nine months. So uh, bottom line is, I can tolerate long periods of disappointment in a quest for long peri for longer periods of outperformance. Most investors can't. So you should always invest client money in a fashion that's respectful of their risk tolerance. Just a couple more questions here before we wrap up. I want to ask you one more around value. You know, one of the arguments was the one you've made here in favor of value is that value is very cheap right now. The other arguments you see are, are two around inflation and interest rates. And, and what those arguments go, they say that during periods of high inflation or during periods of high interest rates, value tends to outperform. And I'm wondering what your research has shown as to if that's true. Uh, the linkage between interest rates or real interest rates or direction, recent direction of interest rates, and the growth value cycle is very weak. There is no statistically significant evidence. The narrative is very strong. Low interest rates means a low discount rate. Low discount rates are better for companies with long duration, meaning growth companies where growth is big for the next 20 years, than for value companies which are front-end loaded. Um, well, that narrative makes sense. That narrative also makes sense for stocks versus um, uh, uh, other assets, that stocks should be more expensive in a low interest rate environment. Okay, let's start with the latter one. If that's true, then why are Europe and Japan with zero interest rates cheaper than the U.S. with 2% rates? That doesn't make sense. If that's true, why was the U.S. in the 1950s, the last time we had 2% rates, one-third as expensive as it is today? That doesn't make sense. So the empirical evidence suggests very little linkage. As for the growth value story, low interest rates in the 50s, was it a great environment for growth stocks? No, it was not. It was a good environment for value stocks. Now, narratives can be very powerful. They can move markets. And so growth versus value moved as a consequence in part of that narrative. Um, if the narrative is at odds with the empirical evidence, and this one is, then what you have is a narrative creating a market inefficiency. That's a wonderful thing. So I look for narratives that don't match uh, the empirical evidence as a wonderful way of identifying sources of possible alpha. Uh, just one more question as we close here. We, we have a standard closing question we ask every investor. And you know, we're, we're trying to get at the lessons you've learned from your career and how you might, what you might impart to your average and individual investor. And the question is, based on your experience in the markets, if you can impart one piece of wisdom to teach or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would it be? The mistake 99% of investors make with some regularity is buy high and sell low. 
um, whatever is newly expensive got there by creating great joy and profit. People don't want to sell. Whatever is newly cheap got there by inflicting pain and losses. People don't want to buy. But if you can impose on yourself a discipline of rebalancing, a discipline of saying, this asset has been so successful, it's been wonderful. Is it out of line with the underlying fundamentals? Should I cut back? Um, for growth strategies, always have an exit strategy. If you don't have an exit strategy, you're going to ride the full cycle and you're going to get hurt. For value strategies, always have an entrance rule, a reason to buy. And our entrance rule is very simple. If something is cheap relative to its fundamentals and it's no longer in free fall, it's okay to start buying. And you nibble away, you nibble away, and that way you wind up with peak exposure at the trough. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, you have to get you have to be able to get the exit and the entry right. Um, you know, you, if you get one of those wrong, you can definitely mess up your investment strategy. Well, Rob, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you for spending the time with us. Um, if investors want to find out more about you or about Research Affiliates, what are the best places for them to go? Researchaffiliates.com is our website. We have two components to the website on the upper right corner. If you log into Researchaffiliates.com, uh, one is Asset Allocation Interactive, which shows forward-looking expected returns uh, on 130 different asset classes, um, and Smart Beta Interactive, which shows the relative cheapness or richness of uh, an array of factors and strategies um, that largely comprise what is loosely described as the Smart Beta Arena. And like I said, there's a lot of smart beta strategies that uh, aren't very smart at all. But um, uh, the, the regular mechanistic quantitative strategies that are available, most of them are on that website. And we don't, we don't opine on the wisdom of each of the strategies. All we do is ask, is this strategy cheap or rich relative to its own history? And when it's been this cheap or this rich, how well has it tended to subsequently perform? And out of that comes a scatter plot of uh, ranging from currently value being very cheap, very attractive, and things like uh, quality momentum and low beta being expensive and priced to give you a fairly anemic return. Uh, therein lies the opportunity set, top up what's cheap, uh, trim what's expensive, and uh, in the long run, that'll help boost your returns. Yeah, both both of the tools are excellent. I, I use them often thank myself. You. Thank you well, so thank much. you again for taking the time to do this. All the best. This has been great fun. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.